Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 18th, 2017, and this is episode uh, 2082 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, and that means listener feedback day, and I've got a bunch of great feedback to, to handle today. I have an update on Grant Schultz and Versaland Farm. All things may not be as they seemed when I told you about this the first time around. And I'll have uh, my thoughts on why it's really two separate issues as far as the, the big picture view of things. I have a person asking about buying leftover fruit trees, you know, for a special price sitting out in front of like Tractor Supply or Home Depot or something this time of year. Uh, I have more Zello community feedback that's really cool. I have a question on the police model of the 870. I have getting rid of a patch of mint that you don't want there anymore. I have a little site for you that you might want to use called Gun Genie and tell you why you should care about that. I have a brief reflection on the passing of Jeffrey Pornell uh, and Pornell's iron law of bureaucracy. Additionally, I have a question on can the government actually ever crush cryptocurrency and does what China just did prove that is the case And we have another Build-A-Rifle Challenge for Jack. We're going to call this one the $600 All-In Mountain Rifle. I'll see what I can do for you there. I've gone shopping online metaphorically for the last about hour to put this one together, kind of like I did with the one last week, and it was once again fun. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the TSP Business Directory. Hey, guys, look. If you have a business, you need to be advertising it. To be able to advertise it in something like the TSP Business Directory for as little as $5 for six months is about as cheap as advertising gets. And you'll be advertising to the community that you are part of, that you listen to every day. One customer, and gee, it's paid for itself, hasn't it? Even the higher tier sponsorships, uh, the bronze, the gold, and stuff like that, is still really, really affordable. And hey, look, if you're going to be buying stuff, you're going to be doing business Please check tspbiz.com first to see if you can do business inside the community. Uh, you'll hear some concepts about that today from the Zello community that make a lot of sense. Next up today, jambullion.com. As I sit here, just as a fluke kind of, I sit here holding a one-ounce bar of silver. And as I, as I kind of hold this bar and twirl it around in my fingers, I think about the fact that I know that this will be worth something 100 years from now, and it will probably buy at least as much 100 years from now as it buys right now, because right now it buys more than it bought 100 years ago. And I also know that if I was holding a dollar, let's say instead of a bar of silver, I had a, a U.S. dollar coin, Sacagawea, something like that, um, this going to buy incredibly less. And in fact, if we base it on the last 100 years, it will buy about 97% less. This is why I think, not to the extreme, but on some level, gold and silver belong in your wealth portfolio. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% to 10% of your net wealth is the amount I think you should be holding in gold and silver and, or other precious metal instruments. This includes ETFs, not just hard metal. But I think hard metal should make up, you know, close to 5% at least of your net, your net worth. 
I really do, because it is such a well-proven tool for the assurance of your wealth long-term. And I can't think of a better place to buy your silver and gold than jmbullion.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. We are up to the year 59 this year, and our buddy Corbulo is out whooping ass yet again. In fact, our segment today from David Verne is Corbulo Wins the War. After the end of winter, Corbulo has begun marching south towards Tigran Oserda, a southern Armenian capital. On the way, an assassination plot against Corbulo is uncovered. The plot was led by the allied Armenian nobles who had grown tired of following the Romans, and all the nobles are executed. After arriving at Tigran Oserda, Corbulo launches, this is really great, Corbulo launches the head of one of the executed noblemen into the city. And the ruling council voted to surrender the city peacefully. I'm off script here a second. You gotta get this. This guy, they try to, they try to assassinate him. He grabs the nobles that are behind it. He whacks them all, lops the one guy's head off, I guess, with a sword, puts it in like a trebuchet or a catapult, and throws it over the city wall into the city. And the council looks at it and goes, yeah, I, I, I think we should surrender. And so they do surrender this, the, the city peacefully. Tribridates escape to Parthia. Tigranes IV, a nobleman, is appointed as king, and about 2,000 Roman soldiers are stationed as his bodyguards. As his bodyguards. I think it's also kind of like, hey, you know what? You're our king, right? You're going to do what we say. Here's your bodyguards for your own protection. Yeah. Uh, Corbulo is hailed as a hero and given the governorship of Syria as a reward. The Romans might have thought the question was settled, but the Parthians would soon put down their own revolts and have time to deal with Armenia. My take by David Horn. Corbulo was the most famous general of his era, especially after reestablishing Roman control over Armenia. Uh, this victory was also important for the 20-year-old Emperor Nero. The Parthians had to put Tribridates on the throne because they had put Tribridates on the throne because they had thought the young emperor might be a weakling in matters of foreign policy. Luckily for Nero, he had a good general who could win campaigns, thus bolstering Nero's legitimacy. As it has always been, politicians take credit for that which the military man does. The military spills the blood, both of the enemy and his, his own, and that of his men, and the government gets credit. And I know you can say, well, look, he was famous general, and you know, Storm and Norman, remember, you know, first Gulf War, and these military guys had, you know, but in the end, who did it benefit most? It benefits the people in power. Watch what happens to the approval record, uh, the approval numbers of a politician whenever we do well in battle. The more things change, the more they stay the same. On that note, if you like this show and you like the work that I do and you want to help support me, one of the ways you can do that is by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You can see all the great discounts you get. I'll put it to you this way, guys. 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode. Not a lot of money to support the programming that you listen to every day. But what I'll add to it is if you use the discounts, you get all your money back and more. It's a profitable thing. So why not consider joining the Members Support Brigade today and support the programming that you depend on to be here five days a week, Monday through Friday, for education, entertainment, and sometimes even some humor. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show, which, of course, is your feedback. The first question, I, I don't really like that I have to do this, but I, I do have to do this. Um, I have to take another look um, at the whole situation with Grant Schultz. And it's 
one of those things that, you know, you, you want to completely 100% support somebody, but sometimes you really can't. And, and, and that's, that's kind of how I, I feel about what's going on here. And it doesn't bring me any great pleasure to tell you some of the things I have to tell you in this situation. I actually got a lot of emails on this issue, and I'm going to read this one. <clears throat> and uh, this comes from Tom. This is a assumed name for protecting the innocent, I guess. Uh, question, does your stance on helping Grant Schultz change if, one, he does not own his land, and two, the landlords do not support his rezoning application? In details, I've had some interactions with Grant. All led to me learning something, so when y'all put out a call to help him, I did some digging. Yesterday, <clears throat> the following blog post was published. Uh, the authors claim to own the land, Grant Farms, and do not support the rezoning application. As you can imagine, I was quite shocked. Post goes on to describe the nightmarish renter-landlord relationship. Numerous claims are made with some documentation. Some seem to me to be irrelevant at best, but many seem plausible and have made me seriously doubt whether I'm willing to expend personal capital to help Grant. Letting you know, because I love the show, Lifetime MSB, and don't know what to do here. Thanks for everything you do. Have a good one, Tom. Well, Tom, um, there's a it's, it's a it's kind of a murky place. So, just so everybody is up to speed on this if you didn't hear about this last week. Grant Schultz has a farm called Versaland Farms in Iowa City, Iowa. And he's done some really great things with it, and maybe some things not quite as great as have been presented from what I've learned so far. Uh, but he's, he's done his best with it. It is a leased farm with an option to buy. The option to buy is a guaranteed executable option. That is about as much as I knew when I reported this about the relationship with the landowner. The issue was, due to changes in the laws about how you can use the land, all of a sudden a lot of the things that Grant wanted to do were no longer capable of being done. They put a moratorium on using you know, certain types of labor at certain times of year for picking fruit. Grant wanted to start having people fish the ponds that he put in and wanted to do things like charge them a fee to fish the ponds and sell them a couple worms. You know, that would be another profit center. And they said you can't do that with the zoning, which is just a straight ag zoning. You have to have some other weird, like, hybrid ag zone to be able to sell a couple worms. And, of course, this is all bullshit. And so let's start with the first question. Does Would I change my opinion about helping him just because he's leasing the land? No. Not at all. Assuming the following. He has paid his lease fees on time and is up to date. He intends on executing the buy option and has the money, funding, etc. to be able to execute that and actually make good on it because for all intents and purposes, a lease with a guaranteed execute to purchase option is no different than a mortgage with a balloon payment, assuming you are making your payments at the time you're making decisions. The problem is I don't really know what the status of that is right now. There is paperwork showing that Grant was clearly over $50,000 in the rear on payments in March of this year. And he signed a piece of paper that was part of this blog post, you can look it up if you want to, that basically agreed to that and said he was going to make payments. Now, has he made those? did he make those payments? And if he did, is he current from March until September? I don't know. I do know this. If you are that far in the rear, you are on the verge of being thrown off the property anyway, and then the whole thing is moot. And if you are leasing property from a landlord, 
and you are not making payments to where you are not going to be able to execute the purchase option, uh, no, you should not be able to rezone the land without the permission of the landlord. So I don't think Grant should be able to rezone this, and I am not spending any more political, uh, social, or economic capital to support this unless I hear from Grant, which I haven't since I've reached out and said, hey, what's going on here, uh, with any sort of other mitigating circumstances like, hey, you know what, I am current now, and I have an investor, and we have all the money, and we're ready to execute the buy option. Because if you got that, I'm back to, yes, if that's what you want to do, go forth and do so. The other issue here, though, and this is actually the bigger issue and the reason I wanted to help Grant in the first place. The government should not be able to tell you you can't sell somebody a cup of freaking worms or charge them a couple bucks to, to fish in a pond on your property or how many people you're allowed to have stay on your property. I mean, so th there's two separate issues here. And, and what amazed me is the people in the you know, permaculture community, most who are like just extreme purple breathers, that are siding not with the landowner, but with the state on this when I look at it. In other words, like it's just, well, but he's not doing this, and it's leased, so the landowner doesn't want it, so that's it. Okay, that's fine, but you do understand what created the problem in the first place. The state saying you can no longer use your land this way, even though you could when this all started. Because I have a problem with them saying you can't do that in the first place. Of course I do, because I think that like your land is your land, and if you're not harming your neighbors, then everybody should leave you alone. And I can even understand some level of this shit in sub suburbs, wherever you know you have you know people living on tenth acre lots, and you have ten people to the acre, or even you know six to seven people to the acre, where when you look out your window, you see four or five people's houses and backyards. I can understand on some level, some level of control. And I think this is where, by the way, HOAs would work if there was no city or county government already sticking their nose in there. Because that way people could police their own shit. You know, you add an HOA to that, then you just want more government, right? But when you're talking about over 60 acres of agricultural land, and you're going to tell a man he can't have people fish in his pond, charge them to do so, and send, sell them a cup of worms... I mean, that's just stupid. And one of the purple breathers said that I should take my hillbilly ass and go back to the woods when I pointed that out. My response to that is, if we're going to talk permaculture, I think we should all go back to the woods because, indeed, the forest is the teacher, and the forest never tells a man he can't sell a couple worms to another man. So I have two separate issues now in this. Grant Schultz basically being in debt to a, a, a leaseholder and unable to pay his bills, and yet wanting to change the zoning. I'm not about that. I'm not. And I don't think we should do anything to help that, because I think we'll only make it worse if we help him any further. I think we have a person, this is like when I have a family member that can't handle or manage money. If they're about to be thrown out of their house or lose their car, I might reach in and one time pay that car payment or house payment for them and say, okay, you got to figure your shit out, but I'm not giving them money. Because if I give them money, whatever problem they've created at this point They will make the problem bigger. And I know they're going to make the problem bigger because they made the problem as big as it is in the first place. That's kind of where I see Grant with this right now. Until I hear from If I hear otherwise, any sort of mitigating circumstances, we'll fine. But again, the bigger issue is farmers, landowners in general, being told you can't do this with your land. 
You can't have people that are working for you live on your property. You can't sell people a freaking cup of worms. And anybody that's in the permaculture movement that wants to see the vision of permaculture fulfilled, that thinks that's compatible with the state, is, is just deluding themselves. It is the, we have to resist the state's interference with your rights to what you do with your land at every opportunity. The problem here is Grant, to me, at this juncture, has no valid claim on the land. And if I were his leaseholder, and he was more than $50,000 in back debt to me on it, I would have already instituted eviction proceedings and thrown them off, no matter how much I want the project to succeed. You can't go that far in rear on debt with no plan outward and expect that it's going to be okay. Any more that I can just stop paying for my house here. Let's say I stop paying for my house here and the bank wanted to throw me out. And I came on the air and said this is a war on my sustainable duck operation. No, it's a war on my inability to fund and service my debt. So, again, I don't have a problem with it being leased land. I have a problem as long as, you know, the, the contract on the lease should specify things like zoning. Can it be changed or whatever? And as an anarcho-capitalist, you should live by your contract. So that should, that should solve itself. But when you're in default of the contract, that changes everything. I'm sorry. I wish, again, I wish I didn't have to put it that way, but I do. That's, that's the way this thing works. And so I'm sorry for kind of mounting up the troops on this, but I do think fighting the state is worthy of being done, no matter how and where we're doing it. But, uh, no, you shouldn't be able to rezone land. You're leasing against the landholder's desires when you have no financial means with which to pursue your option to buy. That's, that's the key for me. All right, so next one I have is on fruit trees, right? Which was kind of sort of what was going on with, uh, with Grant Schultz anyway, trying to, uh, take care of some, uh, fruit trees and, and being told that you couldn't have a pick your own orchard on your own land. This is totally different, though. Uh, this is from Johnny in Cleveland. said, Jack, would you buy 19 random fruit trees that are six foot tall and have been sitting outside a big box store since spring? On a recent trick to Trapper Supply, I saw their $30 fruit trees on sale for $15 a piece. The trees don't look too happy, but you can tell they are still alive. Talking with the manager of the store, he said he would sell them all to me for $5 a piece, but I have to buy all of them. I live in northeast Ohio. And we are headed into our cold season. I think $5 a piece for the trees is a good deal. Not exactly sure I'd be financially responsible by buying them and sticking them in the ground and not giving the trees the best opportunity to survive. Should I buy these trees? And if so, what's the best way to get them in the ground so they have a chance of surviving? Thanks, brother. Keep up the good work. Peace, Johnny from Cleveland. I, I probably would for 5 bucks a piece. I, I probably would, assuming they're all alive. And I would actually check to make sure. I would say to the manager, I will buy all of them that are alive. And I would do a little scratch test and whatever, make sure that they're alive. Um, and the, the good news is, the colder it gets, the faster, the better for you and your trees. Trees are designed to go to sleep. All right, They're designed to go dormant. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to any fruit tree that would have otherwise survived because you planted it in the fall and it got really cold soon and froze and the last little leaves on it fell off and it goes to sleep. Okay? The, the bad news is that since they're probably so shabbily and sad and so thin in leaf, 
they probably don't have a huge amount of energy stored up that they're going to dump into their roots. Because that's the beauty of planting in the fall. You get a nice, healthy-looking tree in the fall, and you plant it, and when those leaves turn color, all of the sugars in the tree, the stems, the, the, the cambium, all of that drops into the roots, and it is fuel for the roots to grow in the spring when it breaks bud. And you're probably not going to get a lot of that. Now, let me explain what I mean by I would buy them if they're alive. If they're completely defoliated at this point, I would not buy them. Assuming they have some foliage on them and they just look unhappy. You can't tell they're alive just because you do the scratch test, right? And then the other thing is, it sounds like these are potted trees. If that's the case, I'm also going to buy them. If these are like, Tractor Supply sometimes have these things that are like bare roots and they're wrapped in like this sawdust crap. Um, I would not, I would not buy one of those trees in the spring. They are garbage. They have no root structure to them, and you just might as well throw your money away. I wouldn't pay a dollar for those trees at any time. They're the most pathetic-looking excuse for a bare-rooted tree I've ever seen, and I saw a similar product in Montana that was brought to Sepp Holzer, and if you want to see a pissed-off Austrian-German destroy something, find somebody that shot video of that. Because he just like tore the whole thing apart and was cursing in German and said, get rid of these things, don't bring them here, and I and I, I tend to agree. My instinct is that's not what it is. We are talking potted trees because they're outside and they're still alive. And one of those things would never be alive right now. So foliage on the trees, five bucks a piece, just put them in the ground. Keys to getting the best out of this. One, get the dirt off the roots, straighten the roots out, Prune any circling roots or straighten those roots out and get them into the ground. The, the, the next most important thing, when you put them in the ground, do not plant them too deep. The, the crown, the root crown where it begins to widen out should be at the surface or a little bit above it so that the crown of the tree is exposed. Most people plant trees too deep. They get a tree in a bucket, they yank it out, they dig a hole, and they cover it deeper than it is in the bucket. It is often the case, not always, but often the case that the tree in the bucket has too much dirt on it. It has too much dirt on it. If you expose roots of a tree, they will begin to form bark on them and act like trunk. If you bury trunk that's already formed bark, it will never turn into roots. So getting them not too deep, well mulched, but yet pull the mulch off the crown of the tree. If staking's necessary, get them staked and then water them well as long as it's not gone down to freezing temperatures. Keep the ground moist. Try to get some growth on them in the last couple of weeks before you get hit with a frost and it falls off. And you will probably get more than 70% of them will survive, and probably a good half of them will thrive next year. Now, let's say that's, that half of them is 10, or even 8. 8 thriving fruit trees for, what do you say, 5 bucks for 19 of them? So that's 190 cut in half, right? So that's uh, 90 bucks, 
90 bucks would be 180, 95 dollars. 95 dollars for nine, eight or nine really healthy, good fruit trees. Yeah. Go for it. But those are the stipulations that I'll give you with that one. So hopefully that helps you. Now let's get some, uh, Zello community feedback. This is from Ford Ferguson. He says, I just want to thank you for starting this community and passing on your knowledge and giving me so much inspiration. I was mentioned in an email that you read on the air, and it made me realize how much you and the Zello community have done for me. I am known as Ford Ferguson on Zello, and I have been motivated beyond belief by those fine folks. I walked to freedom from Utah to Tennessee because of the Zello channel. I'm starting a handyman business because of Zello. I am now Nicole Sauce's neighbor, and she is so helpful with advice and just someone to bounce ideas off of. Light Horse, it's another Zello handle, was my first true client and has jump-started my business. Willow is the designer of my logo and a great friend. Christus, J.M. Rosalia, and Nighthawk, and Kimmy are incredible helpers. Leos is a wealth of knowledge and inspiration in pig farming and homeschooling. But of the Zello crew, I'm most grateful to P.A. Prepper. He is building my website, gives great advice and humor, uh, helps me and many others through hard times, spends countless hours helping new users get into the community, and so much more. Thank you, Jack, for making the community possible. The Zello channel has quickly become my closest friends. I, I just think that's fantastic. And I read it mainly just because I figured the rest of the community would think that's fantastic. And to explain to you guys how much I mean it when I say you guys need to be reaching out to each other, doing business with each other, encouraging each other, organizing things between yourselves. And Zello is one of the many great tools for doing that. I, I really think it's a fantastic place to, uh, to meet people. Uh, so check out the TSP Zello channel if you have not already done so. And remember, when you go in there, they're going to have rules, and those rules may not be the rules that you would have chosen, you know, if you yourself uh, were, uh, were, were setting it up. But you didn't set it up. I did. And I didn't make the rules either. The community that coalesced around it over time has created their own system of rules, their own constitution that they govern things by. And I'll tell you that I don't even agree 100% with it. But... That's how you have a community run itself. So check them out, but just follow the rules, and I think you'll have a great time, and you'll make some great friendships. Uh, next up, I have a question from John. John says, I'm new to law enforcement, and I'm looking at purchasing a shotgun. The department allows Remington 870. Is the police model worth the extra money and time to find one? Okay, so the problem with that question is there isn't a Remington 870 police model. There are multiple law enforcement models of the 870 with various configurations of sights and stock and length, some which would be classified um, where you would need a, uh, you know, a, a tax stamp. And I think even a police officer would need that to have you know, the short barrel versions or whatever. So I, what I decided to do was evaluate this question this way. The basic law enforcement model which is basically an 18-inch barrel with a set of rifle sights, an improved cylinder choke, black stock, parkerized. And that is going to cost you, from what I can see, over a synthetic stocked 870 Express with an 18-inch uh, uh, you know, uh, cylinder bore, uh, about $250 to $300 more. Is it worth it? If you wanted a shotgun 
to keep under your mattress or under your bed or behind the headboard or in a safe in your home for home defense use? I would say no. It's not. It's absolutely not. In the end, if we take uh, three-inch magnum shot shells with number four buck and we put that in that shotgun and we put that in your daddy's shotgun he shoots you know, turkeys with and we put one in the synthetic uh, 870 and one in the police model, they pretty much are all going to do the same thing to bad guys at home defense distances. And the only thing that you would really want to do is try to keep it you know, the shortest length possible for use within the home um, without having to go to the government and beg for a tax stamp. And uh, and that would be about it. Or maybe you want to beg the government for a test step, give them their $200. Bucks. That, that's fine, too. I'm okay with that. And I don't really mean beg. I'm just saying that most people aren't going to do that over a shotgun. Okay? So, what do, we, what, what do we do for this gentleman, though, who is in law enforcement? I would say, based on the... I know I'm going to piss some cops off here, okay? But this is just the truth. Based on the way that I've seen... Many law enforcement officers maintain, or should I say fail to maintain, their weapons. I would suggest it probably is worth the extra money for the base model law enforcement shotgun solely for the reason that it is parkerized and it is going to hold up as far as its finish and you know resistance to rust better than the just beaded 870 Express. And that's really the big advantage. I also like that it's an improved cylinder choke versus uh, uh, basically a, a cylinder bore. Um, I do think a little bit of constriction in, especially law enforcement, where you might actually need to have a little more range with something like Buck. And I, I, I personally have found that slugs tend to me to shoot more accurately out of an improved cylinder than a cylinder bore. Of course, you can get... Any any barrel you want for that other shotgun, but now you're going to add a couple hundred dollars in another barrel back into the equation. Um, about the only way I would suggest that you just don't do this and spend about the same money would be go get an 870 synthetic express, buy the barrel for it, swap the barrel and keep the other barrel at home. Now, why would I suggest you do that? I'm not suggesting it unless if you would use the damn thing for hunting, right? And it's going to be maintained well, then I would actually say that's probably smarter because it's, you know, unless you're going to be part of a SWAT team like the LA SWAT team or something, a shotgun is something you go to when you need it and, it, and your needs are not that much different from a civilian when it comes down to it. But if you're not, if you're going to be a dedicated patrol Gun. That's what it's going to be for. It's going to be in your car, and you're going to use it in your duties on a daily, ongoing basis. Then I would say it's probably worth the money because I think, like most cops, you probably aren't going to take as good a care of the damn thing as you should. And it's probably worth the extra money on the parkerization alone. Um, in the end, performance-wise, it's it's really not that big of a difference. Uh, next one comes from Martin in California, or Communifornia, as he calls it. How do you stop mint from growing? Baxter, I live in a mobile home park near Com in California. I have a 2-foot by 15-foot area with mint growing in it that I have neglected. Should not, uh, should have not out, put it out there in the first place. I currently, uh, I currently have some of it covered up with 3-ply cardboard bins uh, that are used for uh, pallets of apples. 
I don't know what else to do besides more cardboard and maybe some flame weeding. Uh, thanks for all your help, Martin. Okay, well, here's the thing. I, I'm not really familiar with the climate in Morgan Hill, California. So I looked it up, and it's just south of uh, like San Jose and San Francisco and all that off the 101. So what that means to me, based on my knowledge of California, is you get a reasonable amount of rainfall. Because what I was going to suggest is don't do anything and just deny it irrigation and it'll die. And if you live like in parts of California where you guys get like, you know, 10, 11 inches of rain a year, it'd be dead in a year if you didn't give it any water. Uh, but it's probably going to get enough moisture. And that you said it was neglected. It's probably getting enough moisture to hang on. You also said that it is a two foot by 15 foot area, which whenever I hear something like that, I start thinking about concrete. And when you have that, you have additional water catchment and you have additional water retention because the dirt under the concrete stays moist. And that mint's going to throw uh, rhizomes up under there to feed itself and it's going to probably thrive even in harsh, neglected conditions. Because mint is not drought tolerant at all. It likes moisture and lots of it. So it that sounds like it has its needs met. So you can either do something to deny it its ability to get moisture, or what you're doing will work just fine. If you cover the whole thing, it'll die off in a season. By spring, when you go to plant whatever else you want to plant there, there won't be hardly any mint left at all. As long as you stay on top of this keeping it covered, because if it starts creeping out, and that's what it's going to try to do, as it creeps out, it's going to keep getting some, some photosynthesis done, it's going to keep making energy, it's going to keep feeding roots, and even if you think you've got it beat, if you let that go a little bit, and there's a couple little pieces of active root in there, when your seasons turn and come back into you know your, your spring, it's going to come back and it's going to start spreading again. You're going to be back trying to get rid of it. Flame weeding. I like that idea. It certainly can't hurt anything uh, unless you burn your foot off with it or something like that. What I would personally do, if you have flame weeder, that's great. Um, if not, you can still do the other things. I would start out with a weed whacker. Borrow one. I'm sure somebody around there has one if you don't. And I would weed whack that shit to the, like, just till dirt's flying. I just weed whack the hell out of it. And then I would spray it with plain old vinegar, plain old white vinegar. And then I would go back to covering it up and keep it covered. And, you know, after a couple, I'd say, you know, four weeks, uncover, take a look at it. See how it's starting to look. If you see any places where it's cricking back up, Flame it, vinegar it, whatever you got to do, and just keep it covered until there's no signs of growth whatsoever. And when you know you really have it beat, when you cover it like that, and you know this would be a good time, might as well improve the ground. Put down a layer of compost on top of it after you spray it, beat the shit out of it, and sprinkle it with like a, like a granulated molasses, like a horticultural molasses or something like that to feed soil microbes, and start building the soil and bringing the soil organisms in. The vinegar is going to dissipate in a day. It's going to be like it was never there. And whatever you flame, you're not going to bother an inch into the dirt. It's going to get hot. You're not going to be able to kill the roots with that. You're only killing the tops with it. And uh, when you can reach under there and you can get down in that dirt, it's all nice and crumbly and got good structure. At that point, that root mass has been broken up and consumed by creatures and things like that, and you're in pretty good shape. Um, that's really what it's going to take is that long-term approach. But by spring, you should be in good shape. Really not as hard to get rid of as most people think it is. And again, if you have a mint patch anywhere where you have like three or four months that you go by without rain and uh, you're irrigating it, if you want it gone, just stop irrigating it and it'll, it'll go away in the dry season and it probably won't ever come back.
This one's follow-up to the gun thing that I did last week, building out a rifle like we're going to do at the end of today's show again. It comes from Jason. Jason says, Hey, Jack, not sure if you've ever used Gun Genie, but if you do, it will show you local pricing so you can avoid the transfer fee from buying from Gun Broker. I searched that Weatherby 3006 and found it for $484.99 local to me. Hope you find that useful. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so you can find it at gungenie.com, but what it does is it re it's from galleryofguns.com. It's a service they offer, and it redirects to galleryofguns.com slash genie. And I've gone ahead and put a link in today's show notes so you can check it out. And you can search by brand, category, gun type, model, series, and caliber, and they ask you to put a zip code in. My zip code is not a very commercial zip code. And what the one thing I don't like about this, and it's not a big deal, it's just something you need to know, is that it doesn't seem to search like nearby zip codes. And by kind of looking up the zip code map for my area and going, that's kind of like where you'd find a lot of gun stores and stuff like that, and sticking those zip codes in, I was able to find a lot more useful inventory that I could you know access that way than my own zip code. Otherwise, it's pretty damn cool. And uh, I think in many instances, yeah, you can probably save money because even if you have a, a zero uh, shipping cost, which the gun that I'm going to show you on Gun Broker today has zero shipping cost from the seller I found it from, uh, you still do have to pay somebody to do the FFL transfer for you. And that's usually going to be about $20. Bucks. Uh, so that's just you know something good to know there. I use Gun Broker because I don't know where you are. And, and what I've found with Gun Broker is if I can find something on Gun Broker – especially new, not so much with the used rifles, but if I can find a new inbox gun for $450 on Gun Broker, I can find somewhere locally where I can get that gun for $450. I mean, I've just always, you know, if I wanted something and I found it there, it gave me a good price point, or I could get within $10 bucks of it, I'll tell you that. And so that's why I use that. Now, that's why I'll be using it at the end of the day. But the Gun Genie, man, galleryofguns.com slash genie, And uh, check and see what's available in your local area. I think that's a great, uh, a great tip there, uh, Jason. And thank you for uh, bringing it to myself and the community. Uh, next up, I have a bit of sad news today. Um, I've mentioned many times a guy named uh, Jeffrey Pornell. I'm uh, sorry, Jerry Pornell. And uh, Jerry Pornell was like a science fiction writer. Um, he wrote a bunch of different books and things like that. I really knew him more for his philosophy, and the most famous thing that he's ever written, as far as I'm concerned, or that, I know it's the most famous. The, the one that like is the most important piece of his work to myself is called The Iron Law of Bureaucracy. And um, I want to share that with you now if you've never heard it before, because this has enabled me to explain so many things to so many people so crystal clear that, that had a mental block to what I was trying to ever say about the government and state and things like that, to where they, they can't really respond to it any way other than, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Here's what Pornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy states. In any bureaucratic organization, there will be two kinds of people. First, there will be those who are devoted to the goals of the organization. Examples are dedicated classroom teachers in an educational bureaucracy, many of the engineers and launch technicians and scientists at NASA, or even some of the agricultural scientists and advisors in the former Soviet Union Collective Farming Administration. Secondly, there will be those dedicated to the organization itself. Examples are many of the administrators and 
in the education system, many professors in education, many teachers, union officials, and much of the NASA headquarters staff, etc. The Iron Law states that in every case, the second group will gain and keep control of the organization, it will write the rules and control promotions within the organization. Uh, this has been stated in many places, and it has been quoted many times. Indeed, Jerry, may you rest in peace. That is a huge contribution to the philosophy of humanity for those that will hear with open ears and take those words and use them to analyze things. One of the things I was able to fully understand with this had nothing to do with government. It had to do with permaculture. It used to drive me nuts that... About half the people that call themselves permaculturists, which if you're new to the show, just think of that as regenerative agriculture. Even though permaculture is much bigger, that's the way to think of it for this, right? So you get these people. They're the ones that are always bitching. There's too many white men in permaculture. What the hell are you talking about? There's not enough well-known women in permaculture. Well, are you a woman? Yeah, then get up and be well-known. Well, I don't want to. the hell? And, I mean, there was a point in time where I almost completely walked away from the entire community and just decided I'm not going to call it that anymore. I know what it is. That's what I'm going to do. But I will never even bother because this is not worth it anymore, this this aggravation. And, and, and Paul Wheaton was quoting Larry Santoyo when we were discussing this, and he called them purple breathers. And I'm like, what, 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 where did you get that from? He tells me Larry, this is Larry Santoyo's thing. By the way, many of the purple breathers love Larry Santoyo because they don't understand that that's how he thinks. Um, and so he explains this to me and I went, okay, well, I, I get who they are now, but I still don't get the rationale behind their thinking. I just don't get it. Like, because I mean, I had this, this one female when I was doing the speaking engagements, I did permaculture voices three years in a row. Right. And, and they were mad that there weren't enough women speaking at permaculture voices as though Diego footer who worked his ass off to put the whole thing together, was obligated to go out and specifically find successfully in the world of agriculture and permaculture people of color and females and force them to come present. So I actually had three different women that I had three totally different conversations with about this. And each one of them <clears throat> I made the following offer to. So if I go to Diego and say that you have an interesting story that you would like to present and you would like to be pre a presenter at the next Permaculture Voices, are you going to do it? And all three of them said no. And I just, I, I sat with complete wonder as to how you could bitch about something. And one of these people, who actually think pretty highly of her knowledge and ability in the world of permaculture, she's actually one of Mark Shepard's students, um, I said, what do you want me to do then? What do you want me to do to help women? Since that's, you know, since it's the patriarchy, because the whole feminist shit came out then. It's the patriarchy, it's misogyny, it's white privilege, the whole thing comes out. So finally, I'm like, what do you want me to do? No answer. Finally, I get an answer in an email. You want me to take a class, a class on gender studies, and then participate in a discussion group with women who are going to sit in a circle and discuss how they feel about the problem. Well, 
you can bet I didn't do that. Where does this all come back to Jerry Pornell and the iron law of bureaucracy? I finally figured out why these people were so angry and hurtful and miserable, not in of themselves, because if you're a, if you're that type of person, you're going to be resentful, angry, and miserable. But surrounding themselves with the concept of permaculture and not getting it, why couldn't they move forward? They're the second group. They're the bureaucrats. They have a bureaucratic mindset. They want to sit somewhere and make rules for other people to follow in a system that was developed by two anarchists and purposely set up so it could never be institutionalized, managed, or controlled by any single individual or any individual group, where it could be bifurcated, trifurcated, quadricated, as much as you wanted, and do anything you want to it, and no one ever got to be in control, and no one ever got to be in power, and no one ever got to make the rules. There was, here's the basic tenets. There's three ethics, there's a prime directive, and here's a whole shitload of methodologies that work, go forth and teach and do. And then the bureaucrats go, well, we should have this, we should have that. And then they're, they're, they're in a, a, thing, a system that has a word to describe it. It's a system known as a meritocracy. In other words, things are awarded and things are recognized and things happen based on merit. When I go out and plant a tree, it doesn't care that I'm a white male. I can't show up my white privilege card and get it to grow. It doesn't give a shit. If I don't do things right, it will die or it will produce poorly. Or if I do things right, I could be a three-foot green alien with an ass on the back of my head. And if I give the tree what it wants, it will grow right. And if I grow enough of them, people will go, that little ass-headed green alien's awesome. I want to know how to do what he's doing or she's doing or it's doing. No one will give a shit. What people judge is the results and the quality of the information and the willingness to step up and make things happen. And I now have a complete fundamental understanding of any such movement or organization or group or thing or community that is completely decentralized and why there's so much angst and anger between people that should be on the same side. Because there's no place for the bureaucrat. There's no desk. There's no desk, there's no red tape, there's no, there's no rules, there's no regulations. You don't get to have that. You either get up and do shit or you don't. And if you get up and do shit and you do it right, people go, wow, that's great. They buy your book, they come to your course, they, they come to your farm and buy your eggs or whatever the hell it is. And if you sit around and bitch and mope and say, it's not fair, patriarchy, meh, 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 no one gives a flying shit. And so the thing that we learn from Jerry is the iron law of bureaucracy is only true if there is actually the ability for a bureaucracy to enforce the rules. The only thing that rusts and then breaks the iron law is voluntarism, agorism, anarchism. Thank you, Jerry. I know I haven't read anything else that you've written, really. But these words have mattered to me for years now, and I will continue to use them, and I wish you the best in whatever journey that you are having spiritually now. And uh, folks, join me in wishing Jerry well and his family well in his passing. Uh, we've lost, in my opinion, a truly great mind.
This one's on cryptocurrency. It comes in from Charlie. Charlie says, hey, Jack, on the surface, it appears governments do have the power to crush non-state cryptocurrencies, with China's recent moves as an example. What's your take, and am I missing something in my logic? Um, and, and so the, for those that maybe don't pay attention to cryptocurrency and don't know what's going on, what recently happened is China came out and said, no more ICOs which are the initial coin offerings, because they have disrupted the financial order. And what my response to that was, hey, I'm glad you see it that way, because that's exactly what they're supposed to do. But they've moved further to basically say, you cannot have a cryptocurrency exchange operating inside China. Okay, so has China said you can't mine cryptocurrency? No. Because I think the Chinese government is probably one of the biggest cryptocurrency miners out there, uh, just just by the way. Um, and they haven't said you can't own it, and they haven't said you can't spend it. What they've said is you can't run an exchange in China. Japan, same time periods, like going, you know what? We're going to license exchanges. We like the idea of having exchanges here in Japan because this is good business. This is free market enterprise. like this. So, <laughs> what is an exchange? What is an exchange? An exchange is basically like a brokerage account. Exchanges are just places where you trade one cryptocurrency into another. That's all that they are. They are not mining. They are not you know, direct ownership, really. They are just like an E-Trade account or an Ameritrade account for cryptocurrency. So, I'm actually puzzled as to why China would do this without outright saying we're going to outlaw cryptocurrency. In fact, China used some discretion because the two largest exchanges in China are being given an extra month. They don't have to shut down until the end of October. And this, of course, rebounded the price of Bitcoin massively and a lot of the altcoins that kind of track with it. So, I don't really see that as a means of crushing cryptocurrency because... Of I guess the only good term for this would be global republicanism. Okay, Now, when I use the word republican, I am referring to the form of government that we have in America. Okay, Not the Republican Party. It has nothing at all to do with the Republican Party. So as I use this word again, please, if it makes you think of the GOP or the, you know, the Republican Party or even Donald Trump or anything like that, I just want you to push that all the way out of your left ear onto the ground, step on it, kick it over in the corner, set it on fire, and you can shove it back in your head later if you really want to. What I mean by republicanism is that you have a republic And that republic is made up of member states. And that those states have the ability to do business freely between and with each other. And yet they each have their own autonomy. And not only in our country do we have a system of government where the states and the, the, the union work that way. But under our constitution, there's very little restriction upon, let's say, Colorado or Florida or Texas or Maine or Arizona or California as to how they will run their state. One of them, though, is that they too must have a Republican form of government, which creates many of the same dynamics. Things that are illegal or in, uh, let's say, maybe not illegal, but too expensive or impractical to do, let's say, over in Dallas County, just right over here, you know, which is only a few miles away in Tarrant County where I live, 
uh, make perfect practical sense to do, thereby creating a system of laboratories of liberty, where as each component does as it sees fit, it then attracts those who are predisposed to like what it's doing and repel those that don't. This works fairly well, <coughs> though the federal government has messed it up a lot, but the limiting factor of republicanism in a union like the United States is what? Simple geography. Yes, if Texas does something really stupid and Tennessee does things in the world I want to be in better, I can pick up my shit and move to Tennessee. But I have to sell everything I own in Texas to make it practical, right? I have to relocate. I have to leave family and friends behind. Like, republicanism does have that as an inherent limitation. I hear from many of you, I would really like to get out of you know, the, the, the three I hear all the time, actually four, Illinois, California, Oregon, Washington, right? Those are the ones I hear all the time. But, but, I also hear Massachusetts quite often. My family, my job, you know, my friends, okay? So that limits Republicanism. How does this apply to cryptocurrency? <laughs> Since you're doing business in ones and zeros, You can do business anywhere and everywhere that you want to without physically moving. It's the virtual nation concept. As long as there's one place that says, we love cryptocurrency and you can do it here all you want, you can't stop it. You can't even crush it. And I mean, let's look at it this way. Let's say the United States government comes out with a law and says, businesses in the United States can no longer accept cryptocurrency. Okay, how are you going to enforce it? Now, they could on some levels. I could no longer publicly say I take, take cryptocurrency. But how hard is that to police, especially with cryptocurrencies like Zcash? See, governments do a lot of dumb shit. But in the end, they do seek self-preservation, and they tend to pick their battles. This is a battle you cannot win. And let me put it the other way. I can send you Zcash completely anonymously from here to Tokyo or Saudi Arabia or, I don't know, Beijing or Alaska or South America. Pick your country, pick your city. Doesn't matter. I can send it to you completely anonymously. There's nothing they can do about it. They don't even know that it happened. They have no way to track it. Now, Bitcoin's not completely anonymous. I know it's not. I'm not talking about Bitcoin now, am I? I'm talking about Dash using certain protocols by choice or something like Zcash that does it de facto. And the more government intervenes, the more innovation will be put up. See, again, we're talking about an arms race with software. Governments can win arms races with jets or bombs or guns, but they can't win an arms race on software. Because three guys in a garage can compete equally with the best that they can find in Virginia. They can't win an arms race with software. And governments tend to not engage in arm races that they know they can't win. Because it bankrupts them and it makes them look foolish and it takes them away from the things that they can do. So if you and I could be in Tokyo and... Azel, Texas, like, like I am, 
and we can do business with Zcash, and they can't even tell that we did. How are they going to crush that when you can go out to most street corners right now and buy heroin? Seriously. And what has drug prohibition done for drugs? It's made them more profitable. When the government attacks something, it becomes inherently more desirable. Think about this. Many of you grew up like I did in a small town where kids drink beer on the weekends, right? You got to know somebody that knows somebody, or you got to be to somebody that is somebody that knows somebody to be able to get a case of beer or a couple cases of beer on Friday night. But if you do, you can drink beer. So what do you do? You drive somewhere out in the woods, a stripping hole or something like that, and you build a fire and you drink beer, right? Okay. If you did that as a kid, it's probably some of the best memories you have. It was a lot of fun. Maybe it's where you got your first kiss. Who knows, right? You met your first girlfriend. Maybe it's where you met your wife. I don't know. Probably a lot of nostalgia when you think about it, how awesome it is, you know. How much of that did you do once you turned 21? I'm not talking about camping or whatever. I'm talking about once you became legal. How often did you shove nine people in a car that was, that was made to take four people somewhere and hike in the darkness quietly, sneaking around, to go somewhere and find some old ratty-ass furniture that somebody threw out, build a campfire and hang out standing around drinking? It's not just because you grew up. It's because you don't have to anymore. It's not illegal anymore. It's not so much fun. It's fun to get away with shit. There's a there's a, there's something about it. There's something about defeating the man, right? That rebellious nature of youth. And if if alcohol stayed illegal, all you would have done is gone from bush parties to speakeasies. So if you can't stop alcohol, you can't stop drugs, you can't stop literally billions, if not trillions of dollars of goods on the black and gray markets being exchanged, not with cryptocurrency, just long before cryptocurrency was here. And it's not just drugs, just, just tremendous amounts of commerce going on that are off the books. The government has wanted to get their hands on forever. How are you going to stop ones and zeros? You can't. You can't. I'm not even sure what China's next move is going to be. It's going to be interesting. My belief is that what they're going to do is they're going to shut it. See, you got to understand, China's a different form of government than ours. China can just say, we're doing this, and you are. It's not so easy here. There's not going to be a whole bunch of court challenges in China over this, is one of the things that I'm saying here. Okay? It's a state-run society, 100%. So... To me, I, I, based on what I know of what China's up to, I think what you're going to see is one state wipe out the exchanges. They're going to bring in state-run exchanges. Because like I said, I know for a fact the Chinese government is involved in cryptocurrency mining. I know for a fact that they are. And I'll bet you a, a dollar to a dozen donuts that North Korea is mining cryptocurrency. You and other people have no idea it even exists. I, I guarantee you that, that 
did, did, like, so this country that we're sanctioning is probably, and boy, that'll probably come out in some war on cryptocurrency. But the reason I worry so little about it is it seems to me that they have largely in the West given up. They've recognized that they're not going to win. So they know that resistance will actually accelerate development. So they've backed off and they're all trying to come out with their own versions of it. But again, I think what's going to happen is some of these nations that are not part of this global hegemon, like Estonia, are going to get there first because they can. See, any country that wanted to do this could do it tomorrow. Boom, done. I mean, you get ten coders together and say, hey, take this, clone it, and make it do these things instead, and boom, there it is. They could do it. But once they do, it's, it's a full-scale admission to this is how money works now. And then you're also saying, well, I want to put up a Marrow coin against Bitcoin. And what if the market says, that's nice, we don't care. So what they're doing is they're trying to buy time by not attacking it. Because keep in mind, eight years ago, when this was really starting to ramp up, they attacked the shit out of it. Now they throw little volleys at it. When, you know, a guy from J.P. Morgan comes out and says, it's all phony money. Yeah, you mean like the stuff you make every day? That kind of phony money? No, no. This actually has rules and actually has, an, you know, you can look at it and understand the finite quantity, how it's divisible, and what value it brings you beyond the dollar. You have phony money. But in the end, they're just trying to keep the public from wholesale embracing it so that they can come up with something first. And they just don't know what yet. No, they can't win this war. They can't win this war. The danger is co-option. It is not a, in a direct battle, crypto wins. But they can co-opt a bunch of it. And if you think about it, from their viewpoint, it makes a lot more sense. What you're going to see is more and more integration because they don't care what they tax. They care that they tax. And all they care about taxation is you pay it in their currency. Whether that's the current U.S. dollar or some new version thereof, if you're paying tax on activity, they're happy. Now, I don't think they can, and I don't think, honestly, that they really want to. That's the big thing because they are starting to understand that this can be beneficial to them as well. And in many ways, if they can get people to adopt their version of it, they can have what they've always wanted, the ability to track everything. And I think what they are most likely to do is to create basically a crypto version of state currency that has some sort of technology developed within it that if I ever convert my currency, let's say Bitcoin, Zcoin, Zcash, Dash, whatever, to theirs and go back that it's some kind of way that it like uses like spider-like technology to follow where it goes. And all I can say to them is, glad you think you can do that. Good luck. Now, let's get to the, the topic that I've been excited about getting to today, another gun build one. All right, this email comes from Bill. Bill says, my son and I listen to TSP all the time and talk about it quite often. We really both enjoyed the segment you did last week on helping an individual pick a rifle. My son is about to turn 16 years old. 
I've made my son a promise that when he turned 16, I would buy him a really nice rifle. At our budget, I'm limited to spending about $600 in doing so. He's been going through a lot of different options for a long time, and he really likes what you came up with with the Weatherby solution in the 3006 last week. However, even though you went up to $1,000, it could still work using the loophole scope and the base rifle because we are not interested in reloading and we don't need any of that type of stuff. But he has some different views of what he's looking for. He likes the 3006, but would actually prefer something, in his words, that not everybody else already has. Something a little bit different. We also do a lot of hunting that is long distance and mountainous type situations. So a lighter weight, possibly short action, might be a better way to go. In fact, he has been eyeballing very expensive, quote-unquote, mountain rifles that are you know, multiple thousands of dollars. And I simply cannot afford at this time. But he would like a rifle that basically he could take anywhere in the country that would be lightweight, something unique, but a very effective caliber, fully equipped and ready to hunt. Again, no reloading equipment necessary. And he seems to want to spend every penny of the $600 I have promised. So he has challenged you to get as close to exactly $600 as possible with a couple conditions. Since the last rifle would already work, the Weatherby Vanguard, and the optics that you chose for it, everything on this second rifle should be different from a different, uh, a, a different model because he can already go back and use those other suggestions. So starting fresh, what can you come up with a, as far as a $600 all-in mountain rifle for my 16-year-old son? First of all, I think this is very cool. I really do that, you know, I, I can bet that there were probably conditions on this. Like, you're going to get this when you're 16 if, you know, you complete your hunter safety, you do this, you get a great, whatever it was. And, and apparently those conditions have been met. And the number of days since being expelled from a birth canal, which we see as an achievement in the world of humanity, seems to about to be met. So we're going to go out and do this. All right. So when I started looking at this, I looked at things like the Remington Model 7 uh, because I was looking for that compact rifle. We're looking for something lightweight, a mountain rifle. We're looking for something with an 18-inch uh, barrel uh, instead of a 22-inch full-size you know, rifle. And I looked at the, the Remington Model 7, and I looked at some other options, and I, I realized I had to go as far as I could with what I could find here. And one of the things that I found that I decided really was the right rifle for this build is the Ruger American Rifle Compact, which is basically the, 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 the American Rifle Compact is to the Ruger American what the Model 7 is to the Model 700 Remington. But it is a fantastic rifle. Um, so I looked at that, and the pricing worked, but I wanted to see how good I could really do in pricing. And again, I'm going to be referring to a spreadsheet that I made in this. And what I have always said, and I said earlier, was my feeling is if I can find a gun-on-gun -gun broker when it comes to new inbox guns, not some old gun that maybe there's only 10 of or something available right now, and one guy's selling it stupid cheap because he just wants to get rid of it, but new inbox guns, 
Um, if I can find it on GunBroker, you can find it for the same price. I found one, and I linked to it to prove my work, like you do in math and school, right? $356, no shipping charges, on GunBroker, click point buy now, not a bid. So $356 bucks was the base price of the gun. For caliber, and this was in the, it was in the right caliber, I went with the 7mm 08 for a variety of reasons. Um, number one, he said he wanted something not everybody had. The 7mm 08 is not some oddball, you know, wildcat or something like that, which is good because you don't want to handle load anyway. Um, but I would say, like, you know, the whole 6.5 Grendel has become like everybody I know owns one. But yet I don't know a lot of people that own the 7mm 08. So I, I think in some ways it's, it's less of something everybody owns than some things that we would think of as being a little bit more edgy. Okay? The other thing is the 7mm 08 is a rock star on performance. It is one of the few, in my opinion, cartridges in a short action that can perform at levels on par with the 3006. It's hard for me to say, man, because I have a big prejudice in my heart for everything that's not a 3006. I love the 3006. That's what I went with. That's why I went with it last week. But the 7mm 08 is one of those balanced cartridges that have that heavy for caliber long bullet with a high ballistic coefficient and a very high ability to penetrate or what's known as sectional density. Okay? So to me, that is a huge part of cartridge performance. The 7mm 08 hits with about the same knockdown power as the 3006 out to 300 yards and more with comparable bullets. So we're not going to go as heavy with 7mm as we are with, with 30 caliber. But, again, in energy delivered. The 7mm 08 in a 140-grain bullet will take a 1,000 pounds of energy, which is generally considered sufficient for killing big game, and I don't think you need that much, but that's the number people use, um, out to 500 yards, which is probably further than you or your son are going to be shooting. So I thought it was a perfectly balanced cartridge that met all of the criteria. I said I would shoot any animal in North America with the 3006. I would do the same thing with the 7mm 08 with a couple caveats. I would not use that round hunting big bears, like brown bears and stuff, because I don't want to get chomped. And I want something that makes a giant hole all the way through multiple times very, very quickly if I'm going to have something try to chomp me, eat me up, so that some guy later finds my wool rich and buttons in a pile of bear scat. Okay? I am not going even with my 06 for that. About the place I would kind of draw the line, I probably, if I drew a moose tag, would opt to use a bit heavier of a caliber, though it will probably work just fine. But I would definitely take up to it, including elk, And I don't know that you could find a better all-around cartridge than a 7mm 08. So now we've got the Ruger American Compact 7mm 08. Now I have to get you a scope. Now, you are absolutely right. Had you not said, I don't want you to, to go ahead and put that very one or very two uh, loophole up there uh, that you used last week, I'd say pick one of those. However, you asked me to do something different, so I'm going to go do something different, but I'm going to cheat. I'm going to cheat because it's still a loophole, even though it doesn't say that. It's a Redfield. And Loophole bought Redfield a long time ago, and basically they make everything in the same factory, which is great because they're building them all to the same amazing standards. 
but rather than get the equivalent to the scopes I gave you last week, I am going to give you a scope that I think will work really well in this rifle uh, and keep cost very, very low uh, overall in the grand scheme of things. This is the Redfield Revolution 3-9x40 Accurange. This scope has a little circle around the crosshairs in it, and if you zero that 7mm 08 at about 200 yards, you will be dead level out to about 220 yards. You're, you're going to be within the, the shooter's margin of error. You're going to be a couple inches high at 100 yards, dead on at 200, and you know a couple inches low at 240-ish or something like that. Uh, which means out to 240 yards, you just put the crosshairs, center mass, pull the trigger, dead deer, dead elk, dead pronghorn, you got it, right? Okay. At 300 yards, the bottom of that little circle inside that scope is going to be about where your hold is. And then there, the next, at 400 yards, there is going to be a little dot on the crosshair about midway between where that circle ends and where your duplex point comes. And that'll, that'll be about where to hold that 400 yards. And right where the duplex comes down and hits the fine crosshair, that will take that gun out to 500 yards. I don't think you have any need to be out shooting 500 yards, and definitely you know, people that routinely do that tend to go up in the quality of the gun and all, but this round is capable of it, and at least you have the option, and it's a damn fine 100 to 300 yard setup, which is where most of your shooting is going to take place. Anyway, even with mountain hunting and things like that, my view is if you can't shoot confidently at 400 yards, then you need to learn how to get within three. If you can't shoot well within three and you only feel confident at 250, you need to learn how to get closer. And I think that's easier in many instances than making these longer shots, heavy wins and things like that. Even the marksman is capable a lot of times. The situation changes uh, when we're not using like dedicated long-range gear. To me, about 300 yards is kind of my self-imposed limit. I have taken shots further than that, but I've never felt the real need to. Still, this scope is... Available to you on Amazon. And I have links so you can see everything. $166. So now we've got the rifle and we've got the scope. The next thing I decided was, well, if you're going to have this gun and you're going to be out hunting with it and you're going to be in the field, you're going to be hiking up and down mountains and hills and through woods and you know black timber and stuff like that, you're going to have all kinds of crap and crud and dust and stuff that can get into your scope and affect your optics. So Baker Creek, to me, makes the, you know, you don't need to spend a lot of money on flip-up scope caps. So I, I found the, and I've got a link in the show notes where you can find the exact ones for the scope. Um, the eye covers 10 bucks, and the objective covers 7 bucks. So it's another $17. And what that'll do, now you've got the rifle, you've got the scope, and you've got the, the, the lens covers. So that when you're out and about and you're hunting, your thumbs come up, boom, those caps pop up. And now we can shoot, but yet we keep our lenses nice and clean. And I recommend these in hunting rifles. I just recommend that you have have them. There's other manufacturers, but I like Baker Creek for the quality quality to value ratio. As always, I'm on. Now, I needed to get you a set of rings. I picked out a medium set of Weaver rings. Uh, they were fifteen dollars. I went a little bit less expensive on the rings, so I could fit a few more things in here for you. Um, the original rings I had were 22 bucks. The ones I scaled down to at 15 bucks didn't seem like I was giving up anything as far as quality that would affect the rifle because I wanted to get you as close as I could to 600 bucks and get you as much stuff from your dad as I could get you. I think when you hear what I come in at, you're able to blow you away with it too. Now, one of the reasons that I chose the Ruger is that it has scope bases 
on it, they're integrated. They can't move, they can't fail, and you don't need to buy them. So we didn't have to buy any bases. They come with the gun new in box. So we're back to having our bases, our rings, our scopes. And now the gun is basically ready to hunt. But I want to spend the rest of your dad's money because he said you wanted me to, and I want to get you all the stuff, and you don't need reloading stuff. So what do you need? You need a sling. Now, I, I, I thought about this, and I thought about this compact, lightweight rifle, And I wanted to do it justice with a sling, but I didn't want to do a big heavy-duty sling. I wanted something that would work well with a, a sling-supported shooting position. Um, but yet I wanted it to be a tough sling that was going to last. This is something your dad's buying you when you're 16. Uh, I want it to be there for you a long time. I want it to be something, even if you choose to do something else with the rifle, the sling might be something that you might put on another rifle that you carry someday. So... There's a company called Noma, N-O-H-M-A, and they're actually run and, and manufactured for by the Amish. They're handmade Amish slings, and they're very affordable. Uh, this one is $19.99. It's a black buffalo hide leather gun sling. So it's a very standard type of sling, um, but it's black made out of buffalo hide. So it's tough, and it's made by you know handmade by the Amish. I think you'll really like it. You can take a look at it. Slings are kind of personal, but this is the one that I would pair with that rifle under the circumstances that you've given me. The sling, to keep the cost down likely, does not come with swivels, so there's nothing to clip. The Ruger American rifle comes with integrated um, swivel uh, studs, but it's a, it's a synthetic stock, and a lot of times the studs on a synthetic stock tend to be seated a little deeper than on a wooden stock. I'm not really sure why, but they are. And sometimes the Uncle Mike's uh, sling swivel uh, that I recommend will have some binding issues through what's called their triple lock, is, is their, is their swivels that most people go to. So I took a look, and I found that Uncle Mike's makes a non-triple lock or non-tri-lock sling swivel. A set of those is 10 bucks. And uh, they're specifically, that's why they made them, because of that binding issue. So that's $9.99 in free shipping. So you got the Uncle Mike's non-trilock sling swivels. You've got your buffalo leather sling. You've got your rifle. You're good to go. And uh, when I looked at all that, I was really close to your number. And, uh, in fact, I was only $16 away from being exactly $600. So I thought to myself, you've got the gun, you've got the scope, you've got the, the scope covers, you've got the rings, you've got the sling, you've got the sling swivels. This gun's done. And you're not going to put a good bipod on it for $15. Bucks. And generally, I'm not a big fan of bipods. and let, Not for a rifle you're going to hike around with. You're adding weight to it. A lot of times those positions you get in to shoot are not practical for it. And a good Harris bipod is $45 bucks or more. So I didn't have enough money left to do that. I thought, how can I make sure this young man gets his, do his dollar's worth out of his dad's $600 promise? So this is what I came up with. Uh, Hops has a cleaning kit that is designed to be taken into the field that comes with what's called a boar snake. And a boar snake basically is um, like a string that's designed to clean out the bore of your, your rifle. You drop a piece through and then you pull it through instead of using a rod. This makes it much more practical in the field, and frankly, it makes it better on the on the crown of the muzzle anyway. 
cleaning when you're using a cleaning rod, you have to be mindful of what you're doing or you can jack up the crown of the muzzle. So the boar snake makes that a non-issue. That was $14.98 in caliber 7mm, also usable for $270. It comes with a little pouch. It'll fit on your belt. It's got a gun cloth. It's got the boar snake. It's got some powder solvent and some oil. So I think that is a great little thing to go with this gun. So how did I do? $599. $599 gets you uh, a Ruger um, American Compact uh, rifle. A, uh, a really great scope with lens covers, uh, rings for the scope, sling, sling swivels, and a cleaning kit. And you're going to have to figure out how to get that last dollar out of your old man on your own. Um, but those are actually, I, I had a lot of fun doing those two builds. Um, I'm up for doing more. I'd like to do something a little, that was, they were actually very similar uh, this time around. If you got anything you can come up with me to do another rifle build, uh, I'd like to. Now remember, I'm going on vacation Uh, Thursday, you will not have a new show. You will have a rewind, and you'll have rewinds through all of next week, and then I'll be back the following Monday. So it'll be a while before I get to it. But, man, guys, I like doing these rifle builds. They're fun, and they're challenging. They say, like, look, you know, as you get successful, and not just successful, right? Like, well, I can't, you know, people say, I can have any gun I want. I can't. You know, I mean, there, there, there's stuff that's out. I'm, I, I, maybe I could, but I'm not spending the money on it, right? Um, but you do lose, and plus you have guns, right? Like if I'm going to go hunting, when I go hunting next month, I have like, right now I have to go sit there and look and go, which gun gets to go? Which which kid do I have to leave at home and which one gets to go, right? And you kind of forget what it's like when you're like, man, I've got a budget and I got to stick to it and I need to get a new gun. And not I, not I want one, I need one for hunting. And it's, it's fun. And it, what's fun about it for me is, Those days for me are so long ago, there's a lot of new options now that didn't, you know, I'm learning about these lower cost entry level guns that are fantastic guns. And some of these entry level scopes and things too. Um, the scope that I found is a damn good scope. Redfield, Redfield Revolution, the reviews on it are fantastic. And not just the Amazon reviews, like the gun magazine and gun, gun blog reviews on it are fantastic for the price point. I mean, again, we're not, we're talking about a scope here. Um, it's 166 bucks. Damn, and, and, and basically, even though it's a Redfield, it's, it's a Loophole. Redfield and Loophole are basically two different brands under the same umbrella. It is like GM and Chevrolet, right? I mean, or GMC and Chevrolet. It's, 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 you know, it's actually more the same because at least GMCs and Chevrolets are built in different places. These things are built by the same people in the same place. Um, so for, for 166 bucks, this is a fantastic, Uh, optic to go with that rifle. And the range finding capability, and it really makes the most out of what I think is a very underrated, long range, flat shooting cartridge that, you know, won't beat the hell out of a 16 year old kid either in that lightweight rifle. You step up to something like a 300 Win Mag in a, in a mountain rifle, and it'll beat your ass. It's not fun to shoot. And if it's not fun to shoot, you don't practice with it. Now, I did one thing you didn't ask me to, um, and it doesn't go in your budget. Uh, but I decided, like, if I was going to hunt with this rifle, what would be my go-to factory ammo? And and the first place that I looked um, is, is Federal Premium. It's where I always go for factory ammo choices, uh, and it seldom lets me down. It's always, like, one of the first things that I recommend. 
And what, what I found to be like, if you wanted a round, I'm going to sight my rifle in with this round. And if I'm shooting an elk tomorrow and a mule deer the next day and next week I'm going to my uncle's up in Wisconsin to shoot a big old whitetail uh, and then maybe down to South Texas to shoot little bitty does. And I want one cartridge. I don't want to be re-zeroing and I don't want to mess with hand loading. I just want to be able to buy one thing. Uh, federal uh, premium trophy bonded tip, 140 grains. Uh, about $34 a box at Sportsman's Guide was a place I could get a price on them for you. So that would be the ammo that I would recommend. And I have a link to that in the show notes as well. So, yeah, had fun with this and uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. All right, next up, let me remind you guys, if you help, we want to help support the show, you know, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop on Amazon. And remember, even though you might be in, not in the market for a new gun, all that stuff I just laid out, it's all in the show notes today. There's all kinds of cool stuff to check out there, so you might want to check it out. The other thing you want to check out, though, on T-Spaz is my reviews. And the one I have for you today, I brought it back around. I reviewed this originally back in the early spring. Um, it's a simple little product. It's made by a company called Porter Cable. It's a 9-inch pruning reciprocating saw blade. This is for your sawzalls, basically. But it's a blade that's made for cutting tree limbs. Why would you want this? Because sometimes the work you're doing on your trees is overkill for a chainsaw. And sometimes when you're dealing with small amounts of slash and stuff like that, you need to cut stuff up. <clears throat> it's more likely you're going to hurt yourself with a chainsaw than cutting bigger stuff, bucking, you know, felling large trees and bucking trees. It's not usually where people hurt themselves with a chainsaw. Now, it's where they get hurt because a tree falls on them, they do something wrong, it kicks back and hits them in the face. I don't mean the saw, I mean the tree. You know, they end up with a tree stuck up on a stump and they try to push it off and it crushes it. Like that kind of stuff happens. But usually when people cut themselves with a chainsaw, it's when they're dealing with a smaller shit. And they get out of hand with it and they break the rule. You take a hand off of the saw while the chain is still moving, even if the throttle's not running. My father-in-law, for you know, quite a few years before he passed away, shattered two fingertips with a little bitty electric chainsaw, like a little one they put on a pole. And he was waiting, he was, and it, it was electric, but that chain was still moving. And he waved to a neighbor, and when he brought his hand back, the top of his fingers hit the top of that chain, and it tore his fingers up. So one thing is they're inherently safer to work with. Um, in fact, my grandfather on my dad's side, words spring to mind when I think about this. I have a quote in my review. Here's what he used to tell me. Moving machines and tools have no sympathy, no conscience, and no respect for human beings. They don't care if they are cutting wood and metal or flesh and bone. You are the one with the brain, so act like it. And one way to do that is to use the appropriate tool for the appropriate job. The other thing is, and I, I missed this the first time I reviewed this product, and it's funny that somebody put it out in the, in the comments, and I didn't think of it because I do it all the time. Cutting tree roots when you're trenching. We've trenched a lot of irrigation pipe across this property. And it never fails, man. You'll find this big old root that you really, it's, it's like, it, they give so they don't cut easy with a, like a, an axe or something or a, a shovel or a mattock. And with here, you know, it's right up against rock and, and, and what have you. So you're going to take your chainsaw, that beautiful, you know, beautiful chain and run it down in the ground and the dirt and the rocks. It's, but you can cut a root out with one of these things like just nobody's business. So I really recommend that you check them out and get them for your Sawzall if you have one. And I've got some links to the Sawzall I own 
And a really good deal in the PS on a 20-volt saw and drill and battery from Porter Cable for about $110. Bucks. You can check out as well. But again, whenever you're going to shop online, if you go to tspaz.com before you do and shop through tspaz, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to today's song of the day. It's by a gal named Brandy Clark. Don't know nothing about her. Not really my kind of song. It's country, but it's not my. It's newer country, um, and, and not really my. You know, I like some new country too, but this is just a little bit uh, mouthy sounding. I guess maybe is the word. Uh, but uh, John, who who picks these out um, for us, said the reason he picked it out is because it amazed him. You know, what's considered news in a small town is actually the same thing that's considered news, ironically, nationwide, depending on who's doing it. Like, it, when you listen to this song, it's all this, like, irrelevant crap that everybody talks about in a small town. The gossip bullshit, right? And you think, well, that no one gives a damn and, you know... Minnesota or Florida if somebody in some small town in Texas had a baby at school right they don't care well depends on who's doing it depends on who's doing it and what you realize when you listen to this song if you actually pay attention is all the stuff that seems meaningless in a big town is considered meaningful by the useful idiots and the sheep that watch the TV every day because Khloe Kardashian did it or what have you And it just shows how the mind of people really works. The constant focusing on the things that don't really matter instead of the things that do really matter and the things that you can actually influence. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me through how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Mama got a call from the principal's office. Better get down here fast. Mindy passed out when her water broke in the middle of geometry class. Her mama didn't know she was nine months late. Been getting on her bad gain weight. And now she's a grandma. Somebody had a baby. Somebody had a breakdown. Ah, oh, it's a big day in a small town. One more junior's football games Got his 12-pack of blood and his Friday night buzz Head south in the northbound lane Junior's in the end zone, halfback pitch Willie's sitting upside down in a ditch And the crowd goes wild Somebody wrecked a pickup Somebody scored a touchdown It's a big day in a small town. There ain't no mall, no Waffle House, but there's always something to talk about around here. Somebody shot a deer, somebody's getting married, and buried, or carried away. Sun goes down. 
postman and a jailmate check out Queen. His wife caught wind of unspeakable sin going down on aisle 13. She left all the chicken in the frying pan, threw all the kids in the grand caravan with a baseball bat. Somebody went to Walmart, hit nothing but a nightgown. Oh, it's a big day. 